If you have your copy of Scripture this morning, we're going to look at the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. We'll use that as a launching pad for the, for the message this morning. As I've, I've said uh, throughout this series, um, this series is more of, of a topical sermon series, which, which I typically do not do. Typically, we have a book of a Bible that we're going through or working at or, or looking through uh, together. But uh, this sermon is, or this series is not going through a book of the Bible, but rather it's a, a topical series where we're looking at what it takes to be a healthy church. Warning, uh, just a warning to you as you're turning to 2 Corinthians 5.11. Last night I uh, was in a panic trying to cut things out of my sermon, and as most pastors do. I, I kept going, well, I can't cut that out. I can't cut that out, and I can't cut that out. And so so um, we'll see what happens. I, I may be cutting on the fly, we'll, which I did last week, which most of you probably did not know, but we'll, we'll see uh, where we end up. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 this morning. Good thing is we have food, so, you know, we, we can go eat afterwards. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And so far we've looked at a um, healthy churches being marked by expositional preaching, biblical theology, a biblical understanding of what the gospel is, as well as conversion. This means when churches do not teach the Bible, they do not teach sound doctrine, um, they then become unhealthy churches. What do you typically think of when you hear the word evangelist? Maybe you think of Billy Graham, or perhaps you think of um, a television preacher of questionable Character, or perhaps you think of uh, like the old school when they would pass the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets uh, down the rows. Maybe that's what you think of. Uh, the word conjures up different uh, feelings for different people. But when you think of the word, what is the first thing that pops into your mind as far as a person? Is it a is it a charlatan, or is it a saint? Evangelism is an interesting topic today. And there are all kinds of modern-day scandals involving famous evangelists. But what about when we get beyond the personality of the evangelist and we think about evangelism itself? We often wonder, how do we, um, how do we best do evangelism? And what does, what does evangelism look like? When the subject comes up, uh, uh, even among Christians, there are questions that arise and Feelings that arise in people's hearts when it comes to evangelism. Some people feel guilty, like, oh, I'm not um, evangelizing enough. And, and some people are perplexed or, or they don't understand it. Shouldn't evangelism be left to the professional people? Shouldn't it be done by those who know what they're doing and know what to say? Surely we don't know enough to do evangelism. And the list goes on and on for reasonings that Christians might give not to do evangelism in their own personal life. Furthermore, skeptics would say that it's just an ego trip to try to cause someone else to accept your gospel. It is, it, it, it's, it's really um, not kosher today. We're in a pluralistic times. 
You can't try to get other people to change their beliefs and accept yours because religious, uh, because religious faith is personal. And so we live in a time where, where we, don't, uh, we don't want people to share their belief and try to get them to be persuaded to our side. So what happens is we leave it to the professionals out of a sense of inadequacy or apathy or ignorance or fear or simply feeling that it's inappropriate to do evangelism. Maybe people legitimately do not know what evangelism entails and how to do it. However, the problem is one of the marks of a healthy church is a church that knows and does evangelism. And so this morning, I want us to consider that. I want us to consider that we got to tell other people this great message that has changed us. And how do we share the gospel? How do we evangelize? To do so, we're going to consider four questions. What is evangelism? Who should evangelize? Why should we evangelize? And how should we evangelize? So I I understand I'm not going to be able to answer every single question that people have. But I hope that after this message, we'll at least understand that we need to be more obedient when it comes to evangelism and that it will lead us to being a healthier church because we've gone through this message and we understand it. Because an unhealthy church is a church where sermons will veer into little cliches and repetition and worse yet, they become moralistic, me-centered and the gospel is recast as a little more than a spiritual self-help kind of sermon and conversion is viewed as an act of human resolve and by varying degrees from bad to worse, the culture of the church is indistinguishable from the secular culture that surrounds it. We do not want that. So let's look at this topic of evangelism first. What is evangelism? What is it? This question seems easy enough. However, while in seminary, I had two books entitled Evangelizology. That is their name. They're downstairs on my shelf if you want to go look at them and read them. They were volumes one and volume two. They were written by my professor. I proceeded to to make comments on why do we need two books to talk to us about evangelism, to which my professor then came into the forums, and he wasn't very happy with me. Um, but uh, anyway, we, we had a good back and forth discussion. It was good. There are times that we share the gospel wrongly because we misunderstand what evangelism is. What happens is we think things are evangelism when they're not really evangelism. So let's answer what it is not. First, evangelism is not imposition. So some people will say, isn't it wrong to impose our beliefs or my belief on someone else? They think that evangelism is this, this great imposition. Now, often the way evangelism is done can certainly feel like it is an imposition. However, when we understand what the Bible presents to us as evangelism, then it really is not an imposition at all. So to prove this, first we must understand that what we believe are facts. They're not options. Secondly, these facts that we hold to are not our facts. They do not pertain to us or our perception or our experience, nor did we make these facts up when we share them. When we do evangelism, we are sharing God's truth. 
So in biblical evangelism, we don't impose anything. We can't, according to the scripture. Evangelism is simply telling the good news. It does not make sure the other person responds correctly to that good news. So I really wish we could, we could make people respond to the gospel. Wouldn't that be great? But we can't. According to the Bible, the fruit of evangelism comes from God and not our clever little techniques or our personal passion for what we're doing. This is the point Paul's driving home to the Corinthian church when he wrote to them, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. You hear what Paul says? He says, I'm nothing, and Apollos is nothing, but only God who makes things grow. He says, we're, we're nothing. We're just, we're just sharing this. The seed gets planted, but God grows it. And, and listen, that's vital for us to understand, especially in a world that's hostile to evangelism. Listen, true evangelism is not about coercion or imposition. That is why there will never truly be a Christian nation on this side of heaven. Never. Why? Because Christianity realistically portrays the plight of the human condition. You see, every religion that I am aware of thinks that the human problem is a matter of human behavior. You behave wrong, and that behavior must be changed. But Christianity does not say that. Christianity teaches that there is a far deeper problem, and it has a more accurate understanding of the human condition. Christianity defines sinfulness not as bad actions, like I've done bad things, but Christianity defines sinfulness as an expression of a bad heart. My heart is bad, therefore I do bad things. I have a heart that's in rebellion to God. You see, the problem is one of character, of our human nature. The problem that Christianity poses can't be solved by political power. Political power will never change human nature. I can't put a sword to someone's throat and say, you become a Christian. Because to be a Christian is not a matter of doing and not doing. It is a matter of having your life transformed by the power of God. So the Bible makes it clear that human problem can be solved, but it can't be solved or forced or be an imposition. All I can do is present the good news accurately to someone and live a life of love towards them and pray that God will convict them of their sin. I can pray for God to show you your need of a Savior and to give you the gifts of repentance and of faith, but I can't make anyone a Christian. Christian evangelism, by its nature, does not involve coercion, only proclamation. We present the gospel freely to all. We cannot manipulate anyone to accept it. True biblical evangelism is never an imposition. Now, the second one is probably going to throw some people off, but, but here we go. It's not personal testimony. It's not personal testimony. Now, I understand that we hear all of the time, just share your story or your testimony, and we think that's evangelism. Now, now a testimony of what God has done in your life might include the good news, but it may also not include the good news. 
So we can tell people how much Jesus means to us and never share the gospel. Have you explained what Christ did by dying on the cross? If you don't do that, then you've not shared the gospel. It is good to share your story of what God has done in your life, but in that, you may not make clear what Christ's claims are on other people. Testimony is very popular in our day and age. And what's going to happen when you share your testimony is someone will say, oh, you know what, that's good for you. I mean, who's going to object to thinking of how being a Christian is good for you? Nobody. Well, that's, that's good for you. But wait and see what happens when you try to move that conversation from what Jesus has done for you to the fact of the, of the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Christ and how it now applies to them. The non-believer. That is when you quickly discover that your testimony is not necessarily evangelism. It's also not social action or political involvement. Some people think that social justice or political involvement is evangelism. So when we take our eyes from God and we put them on humanity, it's not surprising that the social ills that we face in this world um, preface sin. And so, in today's society, problems between people often obscure the fundamental problem between God and us. So we pass off our crusades for public virtue as evangelism, or our compassion for programs, or social justice, or social change as evangelism. I'm just doing evangelism. No, you're not. Donald McGravin, missionary to India, said, Evangelism is not proclaiming the desirability of a liquorless world and persuading people to vote for prohibition. Evangelism is not proclaiming the desirability of sharing the wealth and persuading people to take political action to achieve it. Granted, prohibition may not be on everyone's mind or their number one concern, nor is the distribution of wealth. But the point is the same. Evangelism is not declaring God's political plan for the nations. It's not recruiting for your church. Evangelism is a declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ to individual people. Societies will be challenged and changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the Lord brings people together in churches and they display the character of God in the life of the church and in the interactions that they have with one another who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. It's not apologetics. So some mistakes people make are saying, well, apologetics is evangelism. The term apologetics is a process of answering questions and objections people may have about our Christian beliefs. That could be part of the conversation with others about Christ, and it may include evangelism, but it's not the same thing as evangelism. Defending the virgin birth of Christ or the historicity of the resurrection, yes, they're vital, but that's not evangelism. Apologetics is defending the faith. It's responding to the agenda that someone else has set. Evangelism is following Christ's agenda. It is a positive act of telling the good news about Jesus Christ and the way of salvation that comes only through Christ. Evangelism is not the results of evangelism. This is where I'm going to spend most of my time. Evangelism is not the results of evangelism. 
This is the most dangerous mistake when it comes to evangelism. We confuse the results with evangelism. And we can't confuse the, the evangelism with the fruit of it. This is why it's so dangerous because you can have false understanding of the gospel or about conversion and combine it thinking that evangelism is the fruit and you will think that evangelism is only seeing others converted and you could think that it is in your your power to convert and this can easily lead into manipulation evangelism is not seeing the conversion so according to the bible evangelism may not be defined in terms of results or methods, but only in terms of faithfulness to the message that is being preached. So in the book of Acts, we read about times when, when Paul preached the gospel, right? And few people responded, if any at all. John Stott said this, To evangelize does not mean to win converts, but simply to announce the good news irrespective of the result. In 1974, at the Los Angeles Gathering evangelism was defined like this. To evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures and that, and that as the reigning Lord, he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. So think of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 15 and 16, where Paul writes, For we are to God... The aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. And those who are perishing, to the one we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. Now, Paul is not saying that he delivered two separate messages. He's not saying that he could tell who the elect are and preach one message to them. And and preach a different message to the other people. Paul preached the same gospel to everyone. And yet, in evangelizing the same way towards everyone to some he was the aroma of life and to the others the smell of death you see the same ministry had two effects that is what Jesus taught in the parable of the soils right Matthew 13 the sower scatters the same seed on several different kinds of soil the parable says nothing about the methods of the sower he apparently used the same method each and every time the message of the parable is that some will respond to the gospel some will not respond to the gospel though they all hear the same message we can't fully judge the correctness of what we do in evangelism by the immediate response that we see it is essential for us to understand this because, because a failure to understand distracts the church into pragmatic, results-oriented endeavors and transforms pastors into people manipulators. So as Christians, we must understand that even if we are faithful in telling the gospel, even if I'm faithful and I get everything right, people still will not respond. Their lack of acceptance of acceptance of the gospel doesn't mean that we've been wrong in how we presented the gospel. A misunderstanding of this point cripples Christians with a steep sense of personal failure. And ironically, it causes an aversion to evangelism. So I want you to imagine the guilt that some Christian feels because they've shared the gospel for 30 years with a particular person who's never come to know Christ. Then perhaps feel the person's lack of response. They, they feel the lack of response is somehow their fault. However, the Bible teaches that is not true. That 
Conversions are not the result of my evangelistic efforts or my proficiency, just as resistance to the gospel is not a reflection of my evangelistic failure. Evangelism is not a matter of methods, but of our faithfulness in the proclamation. So there are those that have become Christians through the presentation of the gospel that was terrible, absolutely horrendous. The person sharing may have been scared. They may have been stuttering over every single word. They may have maybe forgetful, forgot things. Maybe they were pushy. Maybe they were intimidating. Maybe they were even obnoxious like I used to be. I'm no longer obnoxious anymore. Okay? The truth is amid the errors. God's Holy Spirit can bring the lost to repentance and faith. Now, now, that's not to say that we should not work to present the gospel as well as we can. That doesn't mean, oh, I can just go say whatever, and if they're going to come to Christ, they're going to come to Christ. No, your responsibility is still to present the gospel clearly. But God is a big God. And He takes our mistakes and covers them with His grace. And He overlooks our faults. And works everything for his glory. Praise God. One writer said it like this. Evangelism is not making of proselytes. It is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making a good case for the truth of Christianity. It is not inviting someone to a meeting. It is not exposing the contemporary dilemma or arousing interest in Christianity. It is not wearing a badge saying, Jesus saves. Some of these things are right and good in their place. But none of them should be confused with evangelism. To evangelize is to declare on the authority of God... What he has done to save sinners, to warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent, and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't deny that much of what we call modern-day evangelism has become emotionally manipulative, seeking only a momentary decision of the sinner and neglecting the biblical idea that the conversion is all up to God and it is a supernatural act by the grace of God towards the lost sinner. Our call to evangelism is not to persuade people to make a decision, but to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ and call them to repentance and to give God the glory for the regeneration and the conversion. So if we faithfully present the gospel, we've not failed in our evangelistic efforts. We fail when we don't faithfully present the gospel. How often do we wrongly wait for opportunities sitting around saying, well, we're just waiting for the right opportunity. I'm just waiting for the right opportunity, and then I'm going to share. Make the opportunity. And you make the opportunity by loving and sharing the good news with someone. You just made the opportunity. You don't have to wait for the right opportunity. What are you going to do when you're waiting for the right opportunity and your neighbor dies? I was just waiting for the right opportunity. I was going to tell him. Well, it really means a lot to them then, doesn't it? When we understand...
that evangelism is not converting people, but it's telling them the incredible truth about God, the great news about Jesus Christ, then obedience to the call to evangelize can become certain and it can become joyful. Understanding this increases evangelism. It moves away from being a guilt-driven burden to being a joyful privilege. Christ loved uh, uh, hearing the gospel builds us up and encourages us, and we should love telling other people about the gospel. Now that we've seen what evangelism is not, let's see who should do it. Who should do what we just talked about? Who should be doing this? So it's difficult to avoid the topic of evangelism. We read our Bible. It's found throughout the New Testament. Paul wrote to the Romans, I am obligated to both Greek and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. This is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome in Romans 1, 14 and 15. Is that just Paul's description of, of what he calls an evangelist? Do these words apply to him and other apostles? Do they apply to us? When we read through the New Testament, we find that evangelism is not just limited to Paul and even the apostles. At the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus, he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very ends of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20. We call this statement the Great Commission. It's a commission for all of Jesus' disciples who heard his words directly and who, heard, uh, who read his words today. <clears throat> Why else would Jesus offer assurance of his presence to the very end of the age, long after the original disciples would be dead? The New Testament is a demonstration that the disciples took to heart what Jesus taught them. And as we read through the book of Acts again and again, we see these disciples evangelizing, and they did so consistently and constantly. Still, we, we have some that ask, who should evangelize? Is it only the pastor? Is it the guy that the church pays full-time to sit around and read the Bible, who stands up and gives the gospel every week? Is that the one that's supposed to evangelize? He's got to go out and reach everybody that he possibly can. Is it just for the professional or the religious people, or does it have to do with each and every Christian? Well, the Bible teaches that all believers have received this commission. If we look more closely at Acts, we see glimpses of this universal obedience to the call. We don't read of it just being the apostles' job. For example, we read in Acts 8, 1 through 4, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Who was scattered? Not the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else was preaching the word. The evangelistic activity is those who had been scattered which according to verse 1 included all but the apostles. The rest of Acts 8 is a story of, of Philip, who was a deacon. Yes, a deacon was evangelizing. In Acts 11, we see lay evangelism. Now those who were scattered 
because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 11, 19 through 21. Ordinary Christians spreading the good news. Peter said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason of the hope that's in you. In 1 Peter 3, 15. Peter wrote this to the whole church, not just to the leaders. All Christians are to spread the good news. Now, part of our evangelistic activity has to do with the way we relate to each other as believers. So Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you love one another. So if you're not expressing proper Christian love to every member of your church... You are in disobedience to God. And you are hindering the evangelistic work of the church. However, there are times that the reason we want to shift the primary responsibility of evangelism to other, others is that we're not really sure how to do it. How do we do it? So let's look at first why we should do it, and then we will see how. Why? It seems strange to ask the question, but we should know what our motivation is does motivation matter yes i think it does i think if our motivation is wrong it matters there can be such a thing as selfish motive for evangelism perhaps some churches are not concerned for the salvation of the people around them but they have a great concern that they not close their doors what if what is true of churches can be true of individuals one could evangelize out of wanting to be right or wanting to win an argument with a friend or to reinforce some sort of psychological belief or to look spiritual in front of other Christian friends or God or, or some made, uh, may evangelize to, to gain successful reputation as an evangelist. So what is the right reason to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, according to the Bible... Good motives for evangelism include a desire to be obedient to the Great Commission, which we just read, a love for the lost, and ultimately and preeminently a love for God. So obedience is to typify us as Christians. The legitimacy of our claim that we follow Jesus appears in our obedience of Jesus. So I claim to follow Jesus, therefore I'm obedient of Jesus. He has instructed his disciples to bring the good news about him to all. So we are in sinful disobedience. If we're not evangelizing. That's right. I just said that. If you do not do evangelism. You are in sinful disobedience. And you're not going to hear that from every pulpit. I guarantee it. But I'll say it. Because that's what God's word clearly teaches. Furthermore. If the Lord has called us to love our neighbors, which he has, one of the greatest obligations which he's called us to, Mark 12, 31, how can we possibly claim to be a follower of Christ if we don't love others? Additionally, how can we claim to love them if we withhold from them the greatest news of all news at such a high cost to them? How is that love? 
The only way that people can be reconciled to God, we believe, is the forgiveness of their sins and restored in a right relationship of love with God through Jesus Christ. That's what we believe. If we are to really love others, then we must tell them about the Savior that we know. Our love for God should be our motive if we are to evangelize, as God would have us do. It has been said, love for God is the only sufficient motive for evangelism. Self-love will give way to self-centeredness. Love for the lost will fail with those whom we cannot love. And when difficulties seem insurmountable, only a deep love for God will keep us following God's way. Declaring His gospel when human resources fail. Only our love for God, and more importantly, His love for us, will keep us from the dangers that we are faced with when the desire for popularity with men or for success in human terms tempts us to water down the gospel or to make the gospel more palatable than only if we love God will we stand for His truth with His way. So ultimately, our love for God leads to a desire to see God glorified. Throughout the Bible, God makes himself known to his creation. We share the gospel to glorify God as the truth about him is made known to his creation. The call to evangelism is a call that we would turn our lives outward, that we would stop focusing on ourselves and our needs and what we want, and we would instead focus on God and the world that God has made. That includes loving people who are made in God's image, yet are at enmity with God according to the scriptures, alienated from God and in need of salvation from sin and guilt. We bring God glory when we tell other people about God. So finally, how do we do it? How do we do this? Now, some people would say we evangelize by preaching the word of God or by spreading the message or by telling the good news. But how do we do that? How do we spread the word? We could say, well, we all need to come to church, but we know that we're not going to do that. And so then what do we do? How do we get the message to the people? There are many ways to spread the word. It can be by preaching. It can be by print. You can take little gospel tracts and use them to start conversations. You can ask people to be in a Bible study. There's many ways to spread the good news. What I want to do is give you guidelines spreading the good news. Because you know what? There's all kinds of ways to do it. You just got to be obedient. But what are some guidelines? Number one, honestly tell people that they repent and believe they will be saved but it will be costly. So we have to be accurate in what we say. We can't hold back parts of the message out of fear or out of awkwardness. You're going to often hear not, uh, not to say anything negative when you share the gospel. One time I was in Philadelphia going out and, and preaching on the streets in, in Philadelphia, uh, giving the good news, and, and uh, the one person that was kind of doing this little training said, don't mention hell. What? Do you, first of all, do you know who you're talking to? Uh, secondly, doesn't the Bible talk about hell? We can't have anything negative. Can't talk about guilt or repentance. Sacrifice is looked at as a negative. So they all get left out. 
We don't want to hurt someone's self-esteem. Listen, according to the Bible, we must make people aware of the fact that they are lost in their sin or they have no need for the good news. This is how Peter preached in the book of Acts. He was honest and honest about the sinfulness of those who he's talking to. We can't pretend like everyone is out there searching for the truth because they're not. The Bible teaches that people are by their nature aliens of God. They're enemies of God. We must be honest about that. It may not be polite to say it, but it is true and therefore it is faithful. Holding back important and un palatable parts of the gospel is manipulative and it amounts to selling a false bill of goods number two tell people with urgency that if they repent and believe they will be saved but their decision must be now we make it clear that the message we have is urgent you can't wait for something better I have this this problem when I go to make a large purchase. I research it. Then I research it some more. And then I research it some more. And then just in case I do some research on the research I already researched. You ever do that? That's what I do. And I, listen, you could waste a good portion of your life researching stuff, trying to find the best deal. When it comes to the gospel... There's no point in waiting for a better deal because there isn't one. Jesus is the only way to God. How else can a sinner and a holy God be reconciled? They can't be. There is no other way. And if Christ is the only way, then what are we waiting for? The Bible makes it clear. Today is the day of salvation. And it warns, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus was urgent when he taught. He told this parable, man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. It's not manipulative or insensitive to bring up an urgent warning in Scripture. It's the truth. No one has an unlimited amount of time. We know that one day God will bring history to a close in judgment. We know that He's giving us a life that He will require it one day. At one time, He will require it back. We have a limited amount of time. It is certain, and how we use that is up to us. This is why Paul tells the Ephesians to make the most of every opportunity. We must capture every fleeting hour and use it for God. We should not be content in thinking, well, I'll live another couple years in my selfishness, and when I have everything in order, then I'll follow Christ. We must know, as Paul knew, time is short. From now on, use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. So ask yourself this morning, Christian, what situation are you in right now that you will not always be in? 
How are you using those situations that God has placed you in for God's obedience? Trust the Lord to use you in your situation instead of seeking a new one. Trust the Lord to use you in the moment you're in instead of waiting for the next moment to come along because you don't know if there will ever be a next moment. Refuse to let the permanence you are seemingly surrounded by and the law of your long hours and minutes and doing what you've always done, don't let it make a fool of you. The days are evil, meaning they're dangerous. A fleeting opportunity, we must redeem the time. We must make the most of every opportunity. So we will say with Paul in view of certain judgment, Christ's love compels us to proclaim the good news. Number three, tell people with joy that if they repent and believe the good news, they will be saved, however difficult it may be, it's worth it. Hebrews 11 recounts for us those who suffered hard things for their faith, and yet they endured. In Hebrews 12, we read that Jesus himself endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Listen, we will suffer hard criticisms, broken relationships, jobs lost, maybe even worse for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martyred missionary Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What is gained in coming to Christ? We gain relationship with God. We gain forgiveness. We gain meaning and purpose and freedom and community and certainty and hope. Be honest about the difficulties when sharing the gospel. But it does not mean that we mask the blessing. It does not mean that we have to pretend like Christianity's life or Christian life is, is just, you know, there's no blessing in it. We can be honest. We need to be honest. And if your Christian life is not blessed, maybe you got a problem. We tell people we have the best news in all the world in Jesus Christ. And for all of the difficulties that they will ever face when they become a Christian, the reward is infinitely worth it. To make the decision to die to self and follow Christ. Fourthly, fourth suggestion, use the Bible. The Bible is not just for preaching. Learn the Bible for yourself. Share it with others. They will see your message is not from your own thoughts. Philip the Evangelist is a good example of this. When he shared the message with the Ethiopian eunuch, he used the Old Testament to tell him about Jesus. When we use the Bible, we help people know we're not just talking about some idea that we have in our head, but these are the very words of God. Fifthly, realize the lives of individual Christians and of church as a whole are a central part of evangelism. Realize the lives of individual Christians and of the church as a whole are a central part of evangelism. Our lives, both individually as a congregation, should, and as a congregation, should give credibility to the gospel that we proclaim. This is one of the reasons why church membership is vital. As a church, we bear the corporate responsibility to present to the world what it means to be a Christian. 
We should understand that church, what church membership means, and we should help fellow believers understand what it means to be a member of a church. God is glorified not just by our speaking the message, but he is also glorified by our living according to the message. We can live our lives in such a way that brings glory to God as others observe us and begin to believe the gospel. Now, this kind of living involves more than just our individual life. It involves how we live together as believers. Remember the words of Jesus? A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. Well, that's hard, right? Because he didn't say just love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. By this. By what? By this love I just told you to have for one another. How I have loved you, you love each other. By this love. All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. We must live a life of committed love to the other members of our local church as a fundamental part of our own sanctification in our evangelistic ministry. Do you understand that? Do you understand that your love for one another in this building is a fundamental part of this church's evangelistic ministry? Can I? I'm going to be real with you just for a moment. And I'm probably going to tick some people off, and that's okay. You can get mad and take it out on me at the potluck. But when we have diarrhea of the mouth, and we gossip about our church or about our pastor or about the pastor's family or about the pastor's kids or about other people in the church and we pretend to be one thing and then we spit vomit out of our mouth over everybody in our church or other people in our church, it kills the evangelistic ministry of this church. You might as well take any evangelistic ministry that you think you are going to have and wad it up and throw it in the trash. Because you are proclaiming, I don't like my church. But, oh, I'm a Christian. Hey, come to church. Hey, follow Jesus. Be like me. Why would anybody want to be like that? Why would they? Can you imagine... Me having a conversation with one of you. Oh, I love my wife. I love her to death. I just can't stand anything she does. She drives me absolutely nuts. Oh, but I love her. I love her. But she does this and this and this and this and this. And I just give you a laundry list of all the ways that I'm just totally disgusted with her. But I love her. Is that love? Nope. Who wants to hear the gospel when we act that way? 
We are destroying the gospel, church, when we do that. We're destroying it. Now, before you get puffed up and say, I've never done nothing like that. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because I've had comments thrown towards me about people in this church. Our individual lives are not sufficient for a witness. Our lives together as a community of believers are the confirming echo of our witness as a church. Number six, remember to pray. Prayer is important in evangelism because salvation is a work of God. We depend on God utterly and completely and nowhere more than in seeing Non-Christians converted. In Romans 10.1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Pray regularly for non-Christians. And know and pray for evangelism and conversions. Number seven, build relationships with non-Christians. Everything that we've talked about so far applies to all situations in which we share the gospel. And it can be with anyone. This involves people that you could get to know if you just gave some time and forethought to going places where you might meet some people who do not know Christ and build relationships with them. Some of us don't share because we don't know any non-Christians. We have to try to find ways to intentionally build relationships with non-Christians. So what, so what you could do is write down all the non-Christians you spoke with this past week. I don't care if it's like, check out person at Walmart. You know, my neighbor, my waitress, whoever it is, write down their name or write down a description so you know who they are that you spoke with and that you maybe know that you will once see again and make it a priority to share the gospel with them. Number eight, work together with other Christians to take the gospel to those who don't live around Christians. That's an extension of what we previously mentioned, but it makes the initiative on a, takes the initiative on another level. Listen, if God's plan is that the whole world should know about His good news, and if He's committed to the task of telling, committed us to the task of telling others, then we must send and we must go. Why would we want anyone made in God's image to live in ignorance of God's love? A healthy local church will see its concern for evangelism in informing its love not just for those around its church or in their community or even in their state or even in the United States, but those that have never heard that we would take the gospel even to all nations. Conclusion? If I can get it done in under 10 minutes, I'll be under an hour. Let me close this as quickly as I can. Everyone is to tell the good news. Everyone is to evangelize. We do it with honesty. We do it with urgency. We do it with joy while living a life that backs up our message. And we do it all for his glory. We must understand that the spirit of God does the converting, not our psychological pressures. Our churches are filled with people who gave into an emotional plea one day. They bowed their heads. They closed their eyes. They raised their hands. They repeated a prayer and they walked an aisle but they've never truly repented and believed. The American gospel has become a watered-down, wishy-washy, walk-an-aisle, non-commitment to Jesus. And we wonder what is happening to our churches. 
People do not want a faith that makes no difference. Our presentation of the gospel is not to be molded by what will get a response. We must understand that spiritual corpses are at enemy are an enemy with God. They will never invite God into their heart. We must preach the gospel. We must try to persuade them. We must know that we do not convert them. We must stand back and watch God use all of his power to convict and convert and to change the sinner, that it is not in our power. Then we will see who can really bring the dead back to life. God can use anybody for his glory. He can use you. He loves to use the anybody's. He used Moses, who was a stutterer. He used Paul, who was a Jewish nationalist. He reached Gentiles when, when no one else could. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist. He was hounded by a group of detractors who called themselves the Hellfire Club. When Whitfield would stand outside preaching, this little group of guys would stand off on the side and mimic him. They didn't believe a word of it. The ringleader was called Thorpe. One day, Thorpe was mimicking Whitfield to his cronies, delivering his sermon with brilliant accuracy, perfectly imitating his tone and his facial expressions. When he himself was so pierced that he sat down and was converted on the spot. The gospel is powerful, even in itself. May we as churches and individuals be involved in the ministry of evangelism. May we do and see the fruit. And may church membership regain its true meaning. And may the gospel become visible to the world around us and even the world that's within the church. One last thing and I'm done. There are times that people will say this. If you believe in election, then you won't evangelize. Let me just be clear that many of the greatest evangelists in the history of Christendom have believed that salvation is by God's election. Belief in the doctrine of election did not dull the evangelistic zeal of George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards or of Carey or of Judson or of Spurgeon or of Martin Lloyd-Jones or of Francis Schaeffer or D. James Kennedy or Tim Keller or John Piper. My fear is that if we don't believe the gospel is the good news of of God, then we will not act. If we don't believe that it is the Father who does the electing, that it is the Son who did the dying, that it is the Spirit who does the drawing, and that conversion is only our response to God's giving us the grace, gifts of repentance and faith, then evangelism is our simple, faithful prayer telling of this good news, then you're going to actually damage the mission because you think that somehow you converted someone. But you didn't. You can tell people stories in, in ways that make them cry. You can make them feel a tug at their heart and you can make, they can make a sincere decision. But they will not be confronted with the reality of their sin or their need for repentance by the Holy Spirit. Those methods cannot give them eternal life. And yet they will be baptized and made members of churches and enlisted in the church and be unre unregenerate. The wrong, shallow view of evangelism must come to an end. The view that simply gets people to say yes to a question and make a one-time decision has to stop. We need to see an end to the bad fruit 
We need to see an end to the once they took a stand and they shook a hand and they repeated a prayer. We need to see real, genuine revival, not some manufactured, scheduled meeting that we call a revival. We need to see an end to church membership that's marked, marked largely higher than the number of people that are actually involved in the church. We need to see an end to the inaction in our own hearts and in our lives as we ignore the evangelistic mandate that was delivered by God himself and we refuse to call it sinful disobedience. We are called to share the good news. We must see an end to the debilitating, deadly coldness to the glorious call to proclaim the good news to other people. Do you recognize the importance of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you don't, then you need to because we need to be out sharing the gospel. However, when the message of the cross will truly capture our heart and captivates our imagination and our tongues, they may be stammering and they may be halting and they may even be insulting or awkward or sarcastic. They are imperfect, but they won't be far behind as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. So let me ask you, Christian, what is your heart full of? What do you spend your words on? Is it the gospel? Or is it something that is obviously of far greater importance to you than your love for Christ? What is it? How will you respond? Are you sharing the gospel? Let us close with prayer.